Well, if you would, turn to Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Today we are going to end our journey through this glorious book. Next week, week we'll look at a Thanksgiving psalm, which will be appropriate. And then we're going to view some what I call obscure portraits in the Christmas story, uh, starting, hard to believe we're celebrating Christmas, but uh, December the 6th will be the, the plan of attack. Well, speaking of Christmas and Thanksgiving, this is time for family reunions <laughs> for some. <laughs> some have been canceled, but uh, uh, many of you, I'm sure, remember as a kid, you'd sit around and your aunts and uncles would talk about folks that you never heard of. And they act as if you should know, I mean, their blood type. And I don't even know who some of these are, you know, and, I, and I've heard it all. Oh, my, you, you remind me so much by your laughter of Uncle Herschel. You're, you're sitting in the chair that Uncle Herbert built, right? Or you have a calic, just like your great-great-grandfather Heinrich. So, you know, thank you, thank you. The New Testament can resemble that as well. Paul, believe it or not, in the book of Acts and in the Pauline epistles, over 100 names are mentioned in association with Paul's ministry. Over 100. In fact, the end of Romans chapter 16, you'll find 26 names just in one chapter. They're peppered throughout. And what's more intriguing is one New Testament scholar, Jerome Murphy, states and points out, that when Paul mentions names in his particular letters, they're only found in some where he gives this laundry list, those are letters that are written to churches that he never established. Romans, he never, he never established a church in Rome. He never established a church in Colossae. And, and you see this laundry list. So why? Well, one is obviously to build a bridge, right? Uh, I know so-and-so, you know so Oh, we're together on this. This is great. That's the kind of the idea that's being brought out here as he gives this list. And so in chapter 4 of Colossians, in verse 7, we have what we would, what we would expect, a final farewell that entails blessings with a laundry list of names. So let's read this. It says, Tychicus, a dear brother, faithful minister, fellow slave in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I've sent him to you for this very purpose. This isn't the first letter or the last letter that Tychicus will deliver for Paul. He says that you may know that how we're doing and that he may encourage your hearts. I sent him with Onesimus, the faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. And they will tell you about everything that's going on here in Rome. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. There's a name for a child. If you don't have a son's name, there it is. Right? Aristarchus. My fellow prisoner sends you greetings as does Mark the cousin of Barnabas. By the way, what's that tell you? Mark isn't very well known, but Barnabas is. That's how we're identifying him. You may not know so-and-so, but you all know the uncle. And this is the idea, or a relative. And he says something very intriguing in a parenthetical statement. He says, about whom you've received instruction. So Barnabas seems to be having an influence in Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey. Which is interesting because that's not the realm he went on the first missionary journey or even on his second. But then it says, Jesus called Justice, who also sends greetings in... Uh, Jesus, I'm sorry, who is called Justice, also sends greetings in terms of Jewish converts. And they're the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort to me. 
Epaphras. Now we've seen his name before. Remember he established the church at Colossae. Who is one of you and a slave of Christ greets you? He is also struggling in prayer on your behalf so that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I can testify that he's worked hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the physician, and Demas greet you. Greet, give my greetings to the brothers and sisters who are in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. And after you've read this letter and had it read to the church at Laodicea, in turn, read the letter from Laodicea as well. And tell Archippus, here's another name, right? See to it that you complete the ministry you received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting by my own hand. And there are several letters where he states this. It's showing authenticity uh, of the note as well as a personal touch. Remember my chains. Reflect that Paul is where? In prison, right? And he says, grace be with you. Let's unpack this text, and as we do, let's go to prayer. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, as it is stated in 2 Corinthians, all scripture is God-breathed, even these laundry list of names. And so open our eyes to what you would have in this text. Thank you again for your son and the word that we have. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, of all the texts in Colossians, this may not appear to be the, the most moving text to read. <laughs> Colossians 1 with the exaltation of Christ. Woo! Anyone can, you should be able to preach that one, right? Uh, but this is a little bit more problematic. And yet, on a closer examination, there's some very important things I want you to see as we journey through this. If you have the sermon notes that are on your chair or a close to you. Uh, you can follow along. But we're looking at Paul's parting words to the church. The first of these are two important messengers. They're part of the Pony Express. That's Tychicus and Onesimus. Tychicus, if you recall, had journeyed with Paul. In fact, he left Ephesus in Acts 20 and he accompanied, he accompanied Paul. There was only seven. Tychicus was one of them went with Paul to Jerusalem and obviously all the way to Rome. Uh, most likely he delivered 2 Corinthians, but certainly he's mentioned by name in Ephesians that he delivered the letter. So he's played a key role in Paul's ministry and does play a key role. And notice the descriptors. There are three of them. First, he's called Dear Brother. It's such an encouragement, isn't it, when you have a Christian who, who walks through the dark valleys with you? <laughs> They're there, a brother or a sister. Remember, Paul's not having uh, baklava on a picnic in Rome. <laughs> He's imprisoned. And the possibility of capital punishment is, is very strong. Now, he's not executed in his first imprisonment. It's his second that he is beheaded. But it's still there even in the first one. And so he says to you, my dear brothers. Secondly, he says, my faithful minister. It's been said that the greatest ability in the world is dependability. <laughs> and Tychicus is one of those. Later, we're going to read some folks who, who were here at the moment, but gone later. Not this guy. 
His love for Paul is revealed in his actions, willing to take risk. Remember, Paul's in chains for this gospel. Tychus is putting his, you know, it's guilt by association. And that's not going to stop him. And he's also known as a fellow servant. Later, Tychicus will be sent to Crete and then eventually to Ephesus. Ephesus was kind of the mothership in Asia Minor. Timothy, remember little tiny Tim, has been sent there to take over the work that Paul had established. Tychicus in 2 Timothy is also sent in chapter 4 to also go and help. And he says, he's my fellow slave. Now, there are three reasons why Tychicus is sent. Bear with me here. Let's look at this. He says, first of all, he's to deliver the letter. And again, that's a role that he has played and will play. He is to share the news concerning Paul and his associates. It's, it's an update. You know, there, there's no Facebook, Instagram, or uh, I don't know, Twitter. There's not, no social media. So how's he going to convey what's going on here in Rome? Only by mouth. And so he sends Tychicus. And then third, it's to, notice he says it's to encourage your hearts. What a selfless act on the part of Paul. He's not, he, Paul is not asking for anything. You get those missionary letters? The whole thing is about everything you can do for them. <laughs> and, and I understand there's a place to support missionaries. And Paul is not afraid to ask elsewhere. I understand that. But, but you understand there's a balance here. And Paul's saying, hey... Look what God's doing here, even in Rome, even while I'm in prison. And you need to be encouraged. So let me send Tychicus to you, which is also a sacrifice on Paul's part. He's not there to minister to him. And then we read another name in verse 9. And this, you should sit up and take nourishment. Because he says, I send with him Onesimus, who, Paul states, is one of you. What does that mean? Onesimus is from this region. He's from Colossae. And do you remember Onesimus' story? His name means useful. <laughs> he was a slave. He was a slave who ran away from his master. Turn to Philemon. Let's just look at this little letter. If you get to Hebrews, you've gone too far. Philemon. I want you to see this because this is so key to our backdrop to Colossae, or Colossians. From Paul, Philemon 1. We'll only look at chapter 1. From Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-laborer, Avia, our sister, to Archippus. Did you see this? This is most likely his wife, Philemon's wife, and his son. Archippus is who's mentioned in Colossians 4. We just read it. We'll get to him in a minute. And to the church that meets in your house. So what do we have? A house church, right? It's gathered at Philemon's home. He's got to have resources. He has slaves. One of those slaves is Onesimus. And Onesimus turned and, and fled and went 1,300 miles to Rome. Just happens to meet Paul. I don't think that was a coincidence. Onesimus knew that Philemon had come to Christ because of Paul. And he's hoping that Paul can serve as a mediator between this. Apparently, Onesimus probably has been accused of something. I don't know. He didn't shine the silver well enough. Who knows? But he's being accused. And so he's ran to Rome to hope that Paul will intercede. And that's exactly what Paul does in this letter. Look at verse 10. I'm appealing to you. This is Paul writing to Philemon. Concerning my child, whose spiritual father I have come during my imprisonment, that is the useful one, Onesimus. 
And then he says in verse 16, no longer he's a slave, but more than a slave is a dear brother. He's especially so to me and even more so to you now, but humanly speaking and in the Lord. It's debated on what exactly Paul's asking Philemon to do with Onesimus. Clearly he's asking him to forgive him, but I think also to free him up so that Onesimus can serve Paul because that's what we see happening here in Colossians 4. Onesimus is now serving and I don't know about you. The, the, the positive side of sending Onesimus is he knows the territory, right? He's very familiar with the Lycus Valley. He, he knows who sits where in the sanctuary. He knows who's related to who and what you don't and do do, right? I mean, he's got it all planned out. The, the flip side is Onesimus has got to be shaken in his boots. A prophet is without honor in his own country, let alone a runaway slave. He's got to go back to this group. He's representing Paul, and I love how Paul words it. It's not a coincidence. Watch this. He says he's the faithful and dear brother, so he elevates him. He doesn't call him a fellow slave. <laughs> uh, we don't need to be reminded of that, right? And then he says, who is one of you? They, not he, they will tell you these things. Why? Because I suspect there are a few who are going to have a real problem with just Onesimus talking. But since Tychicus is with him, okay, we'll accept it. So it's just these little nuances, but it, it's so clear that you, you have these two men who are being sent to deliver the letter. And so we have this opening, verses 7 through 9, of the two who are involved in the Pony Express. And now we have a litany of blessings or greetings. The first three are Jewish associates of Paul. The first of these, again, is Aristarchus, who you, Aristarchus, excuse me, who you see in verse 10. If you know your biblical history, this would be great for a trivial pursuit. Uh, he is from the town of Thessaloniki. In Acts, we read of him. In fact, I, I want you to, to turn to Acts 19. Acts 19, Aristarchus joins Paul in his missionary endeavors from Thessaloniki, and he travels with Paul to Ephesus, eventually, in Acts chapter 19. And if you recall the scene, let me set the scene for you. There's a disruption in the town of Ephesus. Many are coming to know Christ and they're abandoning their worship of the gods. And one of those which is very significant to Ephesus is Artemis. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was at Ephesus. It was the temple of Diana or Artemis. They, while other towns in the Greco-Roman world worshipped Artemis, Ephesus was, Ephesus was seen as the keeper of Artemis. And so in verse 23 of chapter 19 in Acts, at that time a great disturbance took place concerning the way. That is Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, or Diana, brought a great deal of business. And he's losing it. And so what does he do? we got to get rid of these Christians. we got to get rid of this. So in verse 28, when they heard this, they became enraged and began to shout. He stirred up the crowd. Great is Artemis. I mean, they, they have filled the amphitheater. This, this theater, which you can visit even today, houses about 25,000 people. So you can hear the crowd cheering, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city was filled with uproar, and the crowd rushed to the theater together, dragging with them Gaius and 
Aristarchus. Same guy. Here's a fellow who has stood by Paul's side. And by the way, the next verse, you got to see this. It says that they kept, they dragged them into the theater, but it says, but when Paul wanted to enter, the disciples would not let him. They knew very well that poor Gaius and Aristarchus are probably going to die. Now they don't, but the odds are it's very strong. And they're like, no, Paul, we got to shield you from danger. But here's Aristarchus who has stood by Paul's side right? And later, he will travel with Paul to Rome as Paul is a prisoner. He will be in part of that, that whole scene where the shipwreck occurs. That's our Aristarchus. He's right there alongside him. And notice how Paul describes him in Colossians chapter 4. Look what he says, my fellow prisoner, literally meaning prisoner of war. Scholars debate, is he literally a prisoner? That could be. Or is he simply identifying with Paul in that regard, we, we don't know. But certainly it's a title. He's a loyal friend to Paul. He stuck with him through the riot, through a voyage to Rome, a storm, and I would argue even prison. He didn't take the easy path, did he? He did not run when things came tough. He suffered and labored with Paul for the sake of the gospel. And so here's this name we just glance quickly over, but you realize there's some juicy stuff surrounding this guy. I mean, this, this is quite, quite a, a stalwart of the faith. And then you come to Mark. Oh, what a louse. Remember old Mark, this little young buck who, who was on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. He abandons the, the, halfway through the missionary journey. We could debate why. And Barnabas then comes back and Paul and Barnabas separate ways because there's a fallout over what they do with good old John Mark. And here he is, God's grace, right? You see it with Onesimus, you see it with Mark. Mark played a key role. It's where it was his house that the upper room met, I believe. He's the one in Acts chapter 12 that the saints gathered at. His mom was Mary, one of those Marys, right? It was Mark who penned a gospel, which was Peter's sermons. And Peter even refers to John Mark as a vital uh, position or vital player in the the message of the, the missionary work. I wrote down Mark's story as an example of how Christian workers can have serious dissension and be yet be reconciled and continue to work together for the cause of Christ. Right? It's also a reminder that even if there are failures in the past, God can still use you. Take heed. Look at Peter, John 21. When Jesus asked, do you love me more than these? He was not talking about the disciples. Never in scripture are we to compare our love to Christ to somebody else. The these is in the neuter. What's he talking about? The fish. Do you, I've called you to be a fisherman, not of this. Why would you go back to this? It's the same thing here. Here you have glorious Mark. And you see restoration, don't you? Paul's saying, oh, bring him along. In fact, in 2 Timothy 4, when Paul's last letter, he mentions that Mark is useful in my ministry. It's just great. Well, there's, there's another of the circumcised group, that is the Jews, and his name is Jesus. And undoubtedly, he's adding a name here, Justice, to kind of uh, help clarify him, not the Jesus of Nazareth. 
I'm Jesus Justice. Jesus was a common name, a Jewish name in the first century. It's like John Mark, uh, adding a name to it. He's obscure. We don't, we don't know much about him. His name is not up in lights, but he's certainly one who is faithful. And he says of this group, he says, they have been a comfort to me. That's a loaded term. One scholar writes, a comfort in its most profound sense speaks of, it's, it's in medical terms, that which alleviates. It's found on gravestones and a letter of condolence. And so do these men offer Paul comfort in the face of death? I think that's very well what we're talking about here. They're not just saying, oh, we love you. Here's a flower. No, 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 no. They're right there in the thick of things as, as again, danger, death, it all looms. And I said, no, 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 we're sticking by side, Paul. We're not, we're not throwing in the towel. Well, it's not just his Jewish associates. He has three Gentile associates. Look at the text. Let's go back. Look at this. He mentions Epaphras. Now, Epaphras receives the most airtime in the list. Why? He's the founder of this church at Colossae. And again, we also know that he plays a key role in the, the ministry there. Notice what he says about Epaphras. Similar to Onesimus, we are told he is one of them. He is from Colossae, right? He's a, I don't know, a Westfieldite, a Carmelite, I don't know. He, he's one of them. He's also a fellow slave, just like he referred to Tychicus. He says, we're in this together. And I love this. He's also noted as a prayer warrior. Did you catch this? Look at the text. It says he is struggling in, the Net Bible has in prayers, but I think really it's in his prayers. It's personal on your behalf is the idea being brought out here. That term is where we get the English term to agonize. It's loaded. It's the same term used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the same term Paul used of himself in chapter 1 when he says, I pray for you. It's the same idea here. So you get the idea, don't you? I suspect there have been a lot of prayer meetings in, in prison in Rome where Tychicus, Epaphras, Paul, they're sitting around and they're, they're kind of praying around the globe, praying on, on, through those missionary journeys. They get to Colossae and they start praying for them. Warren Wiersbe makes this great quote. If church members today put as much uh, enthusiasm into their praying as they did into their baseball games or golfing, we would have a revival. This is a loaded term. He, he says, I'm, I, he agonized in prayer for you. And notice that his prayer, you can read the text, it's constant, it's fervent, it's, it's definite, it's personal and it's with great sacrifice. And then finally, he says, Epaphras, he's a hard worker. He's not only ministered to you in Colossae, he's also done Laodicea, which if you stand on the top of the ruins of Colossae and you look over about, I think it's 10 miles, you can see Laodicea, and then you can see Hierapolis. They're all right there. And he says, they, he, Epaphras is ministered into all of these towns. In fact, the term he uses that he says he has struggled and he's worked for you, is that he, it's the same Greek term in the Old Testament used of the Israelites laboring in Egypt. He may not be making bricks, but he has labored intensely for all of you. And then we meet Dr. Luke. Did you see this? Our dear friend Luke the physician. 
In 2 Timothy 4, he's the only one who stays with Luke or with Paul. Uh, I think he's Paul's personal physician. Ever since the second missionary journey, Luke is seen time and time again there accompanying Paul. And the last name, if you know much about this guy, there should be a boo hiss. Look at the text. It says, and Demas greets you. Mr. Demas is mentioned three times in Scripture. The first time is in Philemon 24, who in that text he's called a fellow laborer. Demas is right in there. Notice the descriptors here of Demas. How many? Zero. It's kind of like, oh yeah, and then there's Demas. Now let me go on. Because I think we already see what's happening. Because I want you to turn to 2 Timothy. I want you to see this. Dear sweet little Demas. 2 Timothy 4.10. For Demas deserted me since he loved the present age. Sadly, we all know Christians who we thought were right there in ministry, serving alongside, and, and yet it was just a veneer. And the attractions of the world shipwrecked them. 1 John 2, he who does the will of God lives forever. But there are those like Demas who are in the camp, but not really. And so it's a bit of a sad commentary, isn't it? And I... I can't help but wonder if Paul's not already picking some things up because <laughs> he doesn't give any glowing accolades to Demas in Colossians chapter 4. He simply says, oh, and Demas greets you. And so we have three Jewish associates. We have three Gentile associates. And now we've got greetings to two churches. Notice he says, give my greetings, verse 15, back in Colossians 4, who are in Laodicea and Tenemphia. Again, Laodicea is, is not far from here, uh, and uh, Nympha appears to be, and this is a, a problematic or a little bit of a thorny issue. Some Greek manuscripts have it in the masculine name, others have feminine. I suspect it's feminine, and what we have is she's a prominent businesswoman who has opened her home for the gathering of believers. Lydia did it in Philippi, and here we have Nympha doing it here. There's three things I want you to see, though, in this that gives us great insight of what's happening in the first century world. First of all, we, we can see that Paul's letters are to be passed and circulated, right? You, you see that when he says, when you get done reading this letter, read it to the church at Laodicea, etc. In 2 Peter, you don't need to turn there, but I, I will read this text to you. In 2 Peter chapter 3... Peter mentions Paul's letters, which is intriguing because they don't overlap in missionary territory. And he says in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, he says, And regard the patience of our Lord and salvation, just as also our dear brother Paul wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, speaking of these things in all his letters. Now, how does he know about those letters? Because you can just imagine, right? If you're over at Colossae and you get a letter from Paul, oh, it's so exciting. And then you're over here at Laodicea and you hear that Paul wrote a letter to Colossae. What do you want? C can we read it? <laughs> uh, I know you don't have a Xerox machine, but could, could we at least read it? And, and, and so you see this going back and forth, don't you? 
early on in, in Christendom. And so even early on, we have this collection of Paul's letters. Secondly, we see that it was read aloud. That's what the text tells us in verse 16. And third, we see that the Christians met in homes, the house churches like at Nympha or like in Philemon. Now, I want you to see something here. It says, and after you've read this letter, excuse me, and you've read it to the church of Laodicea, in turn, read the letter from Laodicea. Where is the letter from Laodicea? <laughs> and I have believers who short-circuit over this. I've taught New Testament introduction long enough to almost 6,000 students. One of the major issues is canonicity. That is, how do we know that it's just these 27 letters in the New Testament? Now, we could spend all hour. We don't have all hour. But let me give you a couple responses. First of all, some scholars believe that the letter from Laodicea is actually Ephesians. We know that it was a circular letter that was to be passed around to all the churches. So that could be the letter that is being referred to. Or it could be a letter that's lost. This is not the only letter that Paul wrote that we don't have in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians, he talks about a previous letter. Where is it? We don't know. What determined which books are in the New Testament? The Holy Spirit. Harold Honer writes, a New Testament scholar, says it's not the church but the Holy Spirit that determines the canon, that is the books that we have, as authoritative. The church only acknowledges the list as inspired scripture and thus what is normative for faith and practice. Let me give you four criteria for canonicity. This is important. So if you're writing out, especially you teenagers who you're going to hear more and more of this, I think, as, as we journey along. Criterion for canonicity, first of all, it has to be apostolic origin. In other words, it must be directly or indirectly linked to an apostle. As the early church was trying to recognize which letter should be included in the New Testament, if it wasn't linked to an apostle, it was not included. Secondly, it needed to conform with the rule of faith. In other words, it needed to be in harmony with Old Testament and other New Testament writings. The Gospel of Thomas, you've heard a lot about that one. Uh, the infancy account says that when Jesus was a little boy, he was playing with his friends. They made fun of him, and so he turned them into birds and they flew away. Well, that is not in keeping with the rest of the Gospels. Jesus never performed a miracle that was self-serving. All right, and, and so we can go on. The book of Sirach. <laughs> I, I love quoting this one. In, in Sirach, it says that the good of uh, that the evil of a man is better than the good of a woman. Ouch. <laughs> yes, it, it's not in keeping with the rest of the Old and New Testament. So another reason why Sirach, which is included in the Apocrypha books, should not be included in the canon. Another, a third reason, it claims to be true. You realize that no apocrypha book claims to be the Word of God? So it, it claims to be true, and fourth, it's accepted, watch this, by the Christian community at large. In other words, churches in Alexandria, churches over in Jerusalem, churches in Antioch, churches in Ephesus, churches over in Jerusalem, when they came as a council and recognized these are the books, it was a collective notion. For some reason, the Holy Spirit did not see fit to include this letter. That does not, I do not lose sleep over that. These are the 27 books that the Holy Spirit has seen fit that we have. Uh, 
I had one professor, I love this, his line is, instead of fretting over what we don't have, might I suggest we apply what we do have. <laughs> Good advice, isn't it? I'll read it again. Instead of fretting over what we don't have, might I suggest we apply what we do have. So, we don't bury our heads in, our sa- in the sand when we come across difficult things such as this, but there is an explanation, and I think the Holy Spirit... Uh, did not see fit for this letter to be included. He did the epistle to the Colossians. And finally, we see a greeting to a pastor in verse 17, Archippus, who, as I mentioned, is most likely Philemon's son. He is a fellow soldier, and Paul places pressure on him, doesn't he? Look what he says. See to it that you complete the ministry you've received in the Lord. Our service to God is not something we do for Him, but it's something God does in and through us. Did you catch that? It's, it's what God is doing in and through us, and that's what he highlights here. Well, then Paul concludes with a statement, and he says, remember my chains. Why would he say such a thing? Why, remember my imprisonment. Why would you say that? I think there's four possibilities. One, it's a testimony to his allegiance to Jesus. It could be a need for prayer and encouragement or an encouragement to the saints. Or fourth, it speaks of his authority. I've paid dear for the gospel. So listen to what I have to say. Excuse me. Well, I told you it was a laundry list, but there are those great nuggets, aren't there? This is exciting. But we're not here just to wax eloquent on names of the New Testament. How do we apply this to our lives? And I've I've got several principles down at the bottom, principles for ministry. The first of these is an effective ministry involves a team. Paul was not the Lone Ranger, was he? Even Lone Ranger had Tonto and Silver, but who's counting, right? He understood the importance of working with people. Ten names are mentioned starting in verse 7 of chapter 4. Ten Paul was a type A personality. I am sure he was ESTJ on the Myers-Briggs, right? I, there's no doubt. Yet he was never threatened by anyone. He, he didn't seek that he might shine a little bit better than all the, those around him. In fact, if anything, he's trying to make sure that they succeed in their ministries. Why? So that Christ might be glorified. It's vital. As we launch this new ministry here at Community Bible Fellowship, as we come together, one of the dangers of of launching a new church is that you have folks who are volunteering and all of a sudden it becomes their turf. (laughs) It's their territory. We need to be careful. We're all in this together. We all have things to learn so that why we can love God well and love others well. And so, an effective ministry involves a team. And, and you know, take that to the practical level. You're going to share Christ with someone this week? There's one that you've been praying about? Certainly, you, you garnish prayer support. Perhaps you take someone with you. Brian's there sharing the gospel on the streets outside the Lucas Oil Stadium before a Colts game. It'd be great if someone was there joining him in that process. Well, I'm starting to preach further in metal. Let's go on. An effective ministry recognizes the sovereignty of God. The cataracts of success, skill, resources, and abilities can easily cloud our spiritual vision, and we start to lose sight of God, right? He is the sovereign one. 
the, the hand of God is in this ministry here at CBF. I mean, otherwise, who's crazy enough to start a church in the midst of COVID? <laughs> I've asked that myself several times, right? God is sovereign. And third, an effective ministry is rooted in God's grace. Paul Tripp and his book, Lead, just came out. He makes this excellent statement. God doesn't call us to ministry leaderships because we are able, but because he is. Fruit in ministry is not the result, is, is the result not, excuse me, of our wise planning and diligent execution, but of the loving operation of God's rescuing and transforming grace. I don't care how great the plans are, how wonderful the technology is that we're utilizing. If God is not in it, we might as well pack our suitcases and go home, right? It's about the Lord. And so an effective ministry is rooted in God's grace. It's also, it calls for sacrifice. Read 2 Timothy. The whole theme of that book is being a good soldier for Christ. It's the call for Timothy to carry the baton and do it well. We have to guard our hearts in this midst, don't we? Look at Aristarchus. Here's a guy who, who endured much. Why? Yes, he loved Paul, but greater than that, he loved his Lord. An effective ministry is goal-oriented. Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Beatings, stonings, imprisonments, shipwrecks. Paul kept his eye on the prize. Betrayals, defamation, innuendos. Paul kept his eyes on the prize. Three missionary journeys with over about 10,000 miles. Paul kept his eyes on Christ. Over three years in prison in Caesarea and Rome, he kept his eyes on the prize. We cannot lose sight of the goal, and we must guard our hearts against the cares of this world, the concerns that, that want to shipwreck. We need to guard that our busyness does not eclipse our sight of the goal. That's our focus, and that's what effective ministry involves. And you see that here, don't you? In fact, look at the prayer of Epaphras in, in verse 12. What's his goal? That you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. It's what drives his, his ministry. And finally, effective ministry is saturated with prayer. Second Timothy is such a great book. Paul says, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Pray, pray that not only the Lord will use us as a church and the leadership, but pray that he also will give you a role, places where you can be involved. Our church, our personal ministry is in trouble if we're more excited about a strategic planning meeting than a prayer meeting, right? We need to be focused. And so some principles there as you look through this laundry list, it's a fitting close to a book. A book that says, hey, we're part of a new community. We put on new clothing. And we do this as we, we seek to live out God's will for our lives, as we seek to exalt his name. And so Paul can say as he concludes this book, and by the way, he started this book with grace. He ends it with grace. Grace be with you. Father, thank you for this epistle. Oh, it's a laundry list of names, many that, to be quite honest, we forget because we seldom see in the New Testament. One is mentioned just here, 
And yet, they played a vital role in Paul's ministry. And, and in many ways, we stand on their shoulders because they are that generation that passed the gospel to the next and to the next, and now it comes to us. It is our desire, Lord, that as a church body, as individuals, that Christ is preeminent. We know that He is sufficient. And Lord, it is our desire to rally around your people for the sake of the gospel. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these men and women who faithfully served you. Demas, unfortunately, did not, and it's a reminder that we need to guard our hearts, but it also shows great grace that folks like Onesimus and Mark could be included. Thank you, in Jesus' name.